All right, our ushers are going to start bringing around the Bibles, the note sheets, and the pencils. So uh, make sure to raise your hand if you do need a Bible. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, starting uh, the last and final chapter of this letter to the Corinthians. Um, we've been in this, uh, this letter for about 80 sermons. The Lord's been blessing us throughout the way, and we're grateful that there are still some things He has left to show us. So if you'd like to open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 16. While you're finding your spot, just a little update. Uh, another thing that uh, was mentioned at the pastor's conference that we just went to, we were in a room of about 3,000 men just singing out praises and glory to the Lord. And, um, and one of the speakers, I can't remember which one it was, mentioned that in that room there were more believers in Jesus Christ, more true Christians than in the whole nation of Poland. So as we support Cal and Aaron Hibish and their work in Poland, be praying that God might use that nation um, in such a way that refugees that go into Poland, for Poland shares a small border with the Ukraine, that they might hear the gospel and that there might be a revival there, there might be an awakening of people in that area. There's a lot of what we call Orthodox Christianity, a, a form of Romanism um, that trusts in the traditions of the church above the the Word of God um, it doesn't have a quite right idea of justification, uh, but that dependence upon orthodoxy <clears throat> has in many ways made the people of Poland very shut off to the true gospel. And so pray that this might open some doors and that the Lord might work in some amazing ways. Be praying for our missionaries over there. Here near the end of Paul's letter, we branch beyond the confines of Corinth and we get a reminder that whatever challenges this church may face, that church is part of something bigger than themselves. Giving towards the well-being of others in the church is presented here as a subject to be thinking about as believers, not just practically, but worshipfully as well. So Paul's going to inform our attitude towards giving to the work of the gospel, and we're going to start in 1 Corinthians 16, looking at verses 1 through 4. The Apostle Paul writes, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me." Let's pray and thank the Lord for this word and ask that he would um, use this to strengthen us, to enlighten us, to give us encouragement, and to help us have a greater appreciation for gospel work. God, we praise you for this word, and we ask, Lord, that you would use this pulpit as a place where truth is preached. It's humbling to be under the teaching of great men who love you and who are so passionate about preaching and about your scripture, God. And I pray that this morning as we look at this text in 1 Corinthians 16, God, that you would in likewise ways lift up our heads, that you would embolden our hearts, that you would help us to understand the, the role that you might have us play in spreading the gospel in this world that needs it so badly. I pray, Father, that you would help us to have right attitudes towards the resources you have blessed us with. Help us, God, to, to not be selfish or self-serving. Help us to not mistakenly believe that if we have much, that it is only for our own benefit, but help us to realize that you give your servants much so that they might serve you better and glorify you in new and in different ways. And so we pray, God, that you would help us to read this text with open hearts. Holy Spirit, guide us and direct us if necessary. 
correct our wrong thinking, Lord, and convict our hearts. Father, we're so grateful that through repentance, every failure that we stumble into, Lord God, is, is made right. Christ has overcome not just the sins that uh, we stumbled through before we met you, but every sin that we will ever commit. And so, God, let us trust you, knowing that we need you, not just at the point of salvation, God, but every minute of every hour moving forward and into eternity. We love you, and we're thankful for all this in Jesus' name. Amen. This chapter 16 begins. Paul shifts our attention to a few loose ends before he concludes his communication with the church in Corinth for a time. He starts with the phrase, now, concerning the collection. And this is likely in reference to a question raised in some previous letter the Corinthians had written to Paul. We've mentioned that letter before as we've preached through this first letter to the Corinthians, that there was probably a letter that preceded it. That letter is lost to history. We don't have a copy of it. But clearly it existed because Paul seems to allude to it and at times answer what must have been very specific questions contained in that correspondence to him. So when he says now concerning, uh, that's a phrase that we should be familiar with. It's a device that is often used by the apostle to re-engage with previous subject matter and to directly address a question or a challenge from the congregation that probably popped up in that previous letter. These are the same words that Paul uses to start chapter 7, chapter 8, and chapter 12. Now concerning, it is a change of direction. So with those words, we are calling to a conclusion, the discussion about the importance of Christ's resurrection and how foundational it is to our understanding of the gospel, how important it is to our hope and to our joy. We keep that in heart and mind, but he is addressing now a different topic. The phrase marks a shift and it displays Paul's patience and intention to acknowledge the minister <clears throat> and minister to his congregation's needs as he addresses this question that they had. <clears throat> the thing that he is presently concerned about here in the last chapter of the letter is a, a specific kind of collection, one that they had obviously spoken about before but needed some further instruction about. Now, the term translated here as collection is an interesting choice of words for Paul. Because it is a rare word in the Greek language, one that appears only a handful of times, not only in the scriptures, but also in the larger body of ancient Greek literature that we still have. It is the term logias. It means to gather together, usually in specific reference to resources that would be used for a religious purpose. There were other more common terms that were used generically in the Greek language to describe a, a financial kind of offering. But each of those terms carries a connection to the kinds of collections that the original Roman recipients of this letter would no doubt associate with taxation and with civil obligations. And so I think this specific term and Paul's preference for it over the far more common Greek words that could have been used here suggests that he did not want people to view this collection as some kind of a basic tax or like a, a, a church obligation. It was not even a reference to the normal supportive giving that every church depends upon for its own operation. It was a special offering to be given voluntarily and to be given in love. So this particular offering is one that will be mentioned in numerous places throughout the New Testament. Paul brings it up again in the second letter of the Corinthians in chapters 8 and 9, and it is mentioned in Romans 15, 5. I'll share some of those passages with you in time. It is a special offering, and it is an offering with a very specific aim. Uh, verse 1 tells us that it is for the saints. 
Now, Paul does not mean here the spiritual all-stars of Jerusalem. We've spoken a little bit about how this term saints is used fairly early in the history of the church to describe not a particularly spiritual or law-abiding segment of the church, not the all-stars of Christianity, but rather as a simple reference to all and any Christians. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord is considered a saint in the language of the New Testament. So this is not a gift to reward those who excelled in holiness. It was a gift of love to offer relief to ordinary Christians who had been made holy by the grace of Jesus Christ. This collection is described here as being explicitly for the region of Jerusalem. But it is not explicitly said to be for the poor. To understand that as the aim of this offering, we have to look at other scriptures for clues. And so 2 Corinthians 8, verses 13 through 14 says, For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need. This is a second reference to the very same offering Paul's speaking about here in the 1 Corinthian letters. There's not a, a visit by Paul in between the 1st and the 2nd Corinthian letter, so the, the, the funds were being accumulated and remained un, uh, undelivered to Jerusalem by the time he writes the second letter. So there in chapter 8, he's referring to it again, and we see that it, it, it's an opportunity for these Corinthians, who in many ways were blessed abundantly, to share some of that to supply the needs of those in Jerusalem. Chapter 9, again, verse 9. As it is written, He has distributed freely, He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Verse 12. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. So as with every properly motivated gift that a Christian gives to another or to somebody who is not in the house of the Lord yet, there's a dual purpose here. Not only is the need of the individual met and a horizontal love is expressed, but as we see the needs of others and put them above our own needs, we in a sense reflect the kind of attitude and heart that Christ had in taking on flesh and coming to die in our place. His generosity towards us is reflected in our generosity to one another when we see a need in someone else and we meet that need. Romans 15, 26, this same offering is mentioned again. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution to the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. So the cause for this financial need was likely twofold. First of all, as the gospel went out beyond Jerusalem and into Gentile lands, the apostles were united in their commitment to teaching a kind of love and care for one another that was very likely foreign to many of the non-Jewish people who would be reached and converted to Christ. In Galatians 2, verses 9 and 10, it says, And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. This is recounting historically the moment when Paul came and received the blessing of other strong apostles in the church to go out and preach the gospel to the Gentile nations says that we should go to the Gentiles and, and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do. So these apostles recognized that a mission that was going to go out into the Gentile lands, that one thing that really needed to be held on to was this, this ethic, this idea that we care for the needs of those who have very, very little. Secondly, Acts 11, 27 through 30 
we read of a prophet named Agabus. Agabus made it known to uh, the congregation in Jerusalem that a famine was coming upon the land in Judea. To the degree that the church in Jerusalem would be heavily impacted by it. So God, (coughs) in his mercy to the saints, sent a prophecy through Agabus so that they might start to prepare themselves for this great hardship that was going to come. So at that point, the disciples acted proactively, and they began to gather and send relief in support of the Christians there in Jerusalem who knew that they would soon be short on food. But there is a third reason, actually, that this offering became such an important element of Paul's mission's efforts. In Acts chapter 15, we read of an important council that occurred in Jerusalem. And if you're familiar with the book of Galatians, you would know that the church in Galatia endured a very difficult conflict in which some false teachers infiltrated the leadership of the church and insisted that the gospel as it had been preached by Paul and Barnabas and Apollos was not enough to save. There was this counter-movement within Christianity, often referred to as the Judaizers, who said that in addition to Jesus and the grace that he afforded to us on the cross, any individual who wanted to truly be saved needed to trust in Christ, and then they needed to convert to Judaism. They needed to namely be circumcised. They needed to start to take the dietary restrictions of Judaism upon themselves in order to truly display their trust in Jesus and to be integrated into the church of God. It was an insistence on keeping particular elements of the Old Testament alive, elements that are not necessary for salvation. So this conflict would prove so critical It began to divide the church in Galatia, and not only there, but other areas started to be impacted by that false teaching as well. It had such an impact that eventually Paul and other missionaries traveled to Jerusalem to address the matter with the other apostles. After much discussion and debate, many testimonies of the work of light that was showing itself to be true and legitimate in the hearts of converted Gentiles, after much prayer and deliberation, two important verdicts were rendered. It was determined that the Gentiles who were converted to Christ did not, in in fact, have to come under the Old Covenant law. Circumcision was not necessary for conversion. The dietary laws were not necessary for salvation. Salvation was through the name of Jesus Christ and that name alone. In addition to that, a pair of provisions were given to clarify the conduct of Gentile saints. While they were not required to come under the Old Testament law, There were some instructions of wisdom given to help to order the way that those Gentile believers interacted with their fellow believers who came from a Jewish background. Acts 15, verses 19 through 20 says, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled. And from blood. Now, this seems kind of like a strange, truncated list of instructions to give to these Gentile converts. But they were given specifically by that council in Jerusalem because there was great care being taken that two churches did not form out of this amazing gospel truth that Christ had brought to the world. There was no intention for a Hebrew church to run parallel to a Gentile church. There needed to be unity between these brothers. And those Jewish converts to Christianity, those Jews who believed that Jesus was indeed the promised Messiah, 
They needed to be able to have close fellowship with these new Gentile brothers. And some of the laws that those Jewish Christians would strive to keep would be very difficult for them to keep if they were sharing a table with someone, for instance, who was eating food that had blood in it. It would be difficult for them to have dinners together or to have fellowship at the table if a Jewish Christian was disgusted by something that he had seen his whole life as against the laws of God, and yet here his Gentile Christian brother or sister now was partaking of that thing. So these are rules meant to guard the fellowship of the saints, Jew and Gentile, both believing in Jesus. For the sake of unity and consideration, they were to take sexual morality seriously. They were not to eat meat with blood in it, nor meat sacrificed to idols. For the same reason that Paul had instructed the Corinthians earlier in this very letter to be cautious in matters of dietary freedom. Do you remember what Paul said about meat sacrificed in the, in the marketplace to idols? He said, now there are no such things as false gods. There is no real spirit that's going to pollute those meats. But if it makes your brother stumble, then give up the freedom to eat whatever you want to eat. So this is consistent with Paul's teaching here in 1 Corinthians. Table fellowship is important to maintaining those strong bonds of love and connection. And the council wanted to move, remove a potential roadblock to that camaraderie. Peter had even momentarily ceased eating with Gentile believers in the church in Galatia before being rebuked by Paul for it. So this was a very serious issue. Now, how did the church in Galatia respond to this verdict that was rendered in Jerusalem? After having suffered a rift of almost catastrophic consequences, the church in Galatia almost split over this. It is noteworthy now that the Galatian church has progressed past it. Not only have they received this proper rebuke and correction, not only did they push out those false teachers, those Judaizers who wanted to, to integrate and synchronize works and faith, but now they were leading the charge to raise money for the more predominantly Jewish church in Jerusalem in a gesture of solidarity and support. So you can begin to see how this particular special offering becomes very symbolic in, in the unifying power that it had to show those Jewish brothers and sisters that the Gentile brothers and sisters loved them. Though they were not taking upon circumcision, though they were not following the dietary laws to a T, and, and they were not taking upon the civil laws of the Old Testament, they still loved their brothers and sisters and wanted to support them. The Galatians have heard of the financial struggles of the saints in Jerusalem and having shared in the spiritual blessings of the Jewish heritage and history. They are more than happy now to invite their Jewish brothers to share in the material blessings that God has rendered unto them in Galatia. Paul is giving the Corinthian church the same opportunity. He's helping them to have a vehicle by which they might show support to Jewish brothers in Jerusalem who are struggling through this famine, who are, who are in dire need of financial help. Now, the apostles wanted to make every effort to remedy that cultural rift that existed between the Jews and the Gentiles. And so this offering, while no doubt meeting the very practical needs of the saints in Jerusalem, was also used by Paul as a, as a means by which the love of the Gentile Christians might be expressed to their Jewish brothers and sisters. The work of supporting God's people is a very worthy work. And if our hearts are fully committed to our Savior, then we have every reason to love what He loves. To love it to such a degree that other things that we might have a fondness for in life are far smaller in comparison. There's nothing in the Scripture that says you can't have hobbies. 
that you can't enjoy entertainment from time to time, that you can't like travel and doing things that are simply a blessing to your senses. But we are told consistently in Scripture that we are to have one first and foremost love, and that love is for Jesus Christ our Savior. And if Jesus Christ's heart is for the lost, if Christ's heart is for the spread of the gospel, if Christ's heart is for the, the strengthening and the protection of his bride and her purification through the preaching of the word, then our hearts should love those things too to such a degree that it is reflected in the ways that we order our lives and the ways that we make use of the resources that God has provided for us. In an environment in Jerusalem where faith had very real consequences, by the way, when you, as a Jew, professed Jesus Christ as your Messiah, when you claimed to all, professed with your mouth and were baptized in such a way that people could see that you were now connected to that Jesus who was crucified by the Roman government, much of the Jewish community there would instantly cut you off. In Jerusalem, you might lose your job for becoming a Christian, uh, becoming a Christian as a Jew. You might have your loved ones, your own family might turn their back on you. Relatives and neighbors would no longer give you the benefit of hospitality. Uh, the Jewish nation for centuries had been unique in the way that it cared for its own. There were provisions in the Old Testament law to have a hospitable heart to those who were hurting, to let those who had fallen into uh, indentured servanthood be let off the hook every seven years to the year of Jubilee. There was, there was great provisions to protect for those who had fallen on bad times. And part of that protection was communal. The community would look out for each other. And yet if you believed in Jesus Christ, that temple system of taking care of the poor was not available to you anymore. You were on your own. And so they needed help from somewhere. The fact that this offering that Paul is calling for would result in no direct benefit to the people of Corinth themselves, that's a significant fact. With all of the time and attention that Paul has given to the unique needs and challenges being faced by this Corinthian church, they needed to remember that they belonged to a greater body of believers throughout the world. The work of our mission should extend beyond the local congregation. So in the same way, brothers and sisters, first family is not the full expression of Christ's church. And praise God for that. There are believers throughout the world who are gathered together on this very morning who are putting their eyes on the text that you're reading today, who are studying from Scripture, who are asking God to grow them and shape them and strengthen them, who are praying that new people who have never heard the gospel will come among them this morning and that God will, will shine the light of salvation into their lives today. There are people who are drastically different than you, but in the way that matters the most, just like you if you, pro you profess Jesus Christ as your Savior. And those congregations have got to be on our hearts and minds as well. Are we mindful of our brothers and sisters who worship Jesus in other parts of the world? This is part of the reason that right now you know that our church is going through a difficult time with the Southern Baptist Convention that we're connected to. It's part of the reason that we have been hesitant to withdraw from the SBC because historically the Southern Baptist Convention has had such a strong commitment to missions, to the spread of the gospel, and to support of the church throughout the world. No matter where that mission goes to, the Southern Baptist Church has historically wanted to be in support of that and has been a useful tool to channel resources to people who really needed them in areas where there were very little. 
That might have to cease if the SBC continues to go in the wrong direction, theologically, doctrinally, and practically. And we'll speak more of that next week as we're going to be talking about allies and adversaries to the Christian church and how we need to be discerning between those two things. But our heart needs to be alive for the mission of Jesus Christ. Our mission here to reach this area, but also God's mission pervading throughout the whole world. So this specific offering is part of Paul's efforts to bring unity between Christians of Jewish and Gentile background. The Gentiles have been blessed to participate in the spiritual blessings of Israel, and they now have the chance to invite their Jewish brothers and sisters to partake in their material blessings. And so here Paul instructs the Corinthians regarding this special offering. And there are many helpful principles that are on display here that inform our worshipful kind of giving that we practice each Sunday. So we're going to look at some of those principles of giving. Before we do so, though, I want to make it clear, this section of Scripture is not properly instructions on the regular giving that is to be given by the church in support of local ministry week in and week out. Technically, this is speaking specifically to a special fund, to a special work that goes beyond and above the normal giving of the people in Corinth for the support of the ministry there in Corinth. Nonetheless, the instructions that are given here do shed light on the general attitude that a believer should have towards their money and towards giving to the spread of the gospel in general, specifically in places uh, far away from our own. So in verse 2, Paul begins by setting a schedule for this gift. He says, On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and to store it up. And so our first principle today we should give to the Lord regularly, church. We should give to the Lord regularly. Now, this reference offers support to the belief that the church began to shift their designated day of gathering worship to Sunday. It's not our only evidence. We know that before this, the Sabbath was conducted on Saturday. That was the day when the Jews would get together at synagogue to read through Scripture together and to grow in their understanding of the Old Covenant. It was the time when people would come to the temple to offer sacrifices for their sins or for festival offerings. But early on in the church, we begin to see evidence that believers who had trusted in Jesus as Messiah began to view Sunday, the day of the resurrection, as the day when believers were to get together to experience the kind of joy we have today, coming face to face to worship our God, give Him glory, and to offer our praise to Him. Acts 20, verse 7 says, On the first day of the week, that being Sunday, when we were gathered together to break bed, speaking of breaking bread, is, that's specifically a reference to the practice of communion, which we observed last week. It says, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech, his sermon, until midnight. Now, uh, thankfully for you, I don't plan to keep the same preaching schedule as Paul, but you can see here that the saints are meeting together on the Lord's Day, on Sunday. We see again in Revelation uh, chapter 1, verses 10 through 11, a possible reference to this shift. It says in verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, meaning the day that Christ rose victoriously from the grave. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, and then John goes on to describe um, the beginnings of the revelation that he records in that final book of the New Testament canon. So the Lord's Day is a term the early church used to describe Sunday because Sunday was the day that Christ had demonstrated his power over sin 
and over death. He rose on the third day in perfect harmony with his prophetic promises to do so. So you might recognize the day of your birth. I know some of you have some birthdays coming up. I think Stephen's got a birthday coming up. You might recognize the day of your birth as noteworthy. Noteworthy enough to give it an annual celebration, right? But the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so significant. It is so noteworthy that we want to celebrate that anniversary every week of the year. Every Sunday, we want to put our eyes upon the cross. We want to put our eyes upon the empty tomb. We want to exalt in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and His ascension to heaven. The Lord's Day is a term the early church used to describe the day when they were meeting. And here we see them speaking about a collection being taken up then. We gather on the Lord's Day to give Him worship, to honor Him together. We gather in remembrance of the debt that He paid for us. We gather to pray. We gather to preach the Word and to declare to one another the things that God has communicated in His Scripture. We gather to sing praises and to lift our voices up in a joyous chorus of faith. And we gather to offer up support of the mission of making disciples and facilitating the growth of Christ's kingdom. So these Corinthians, when they gathered together to do what they would do every Sunday to worship the Lord, they were to, as part of that, set aside a portion of what they had been blessed with that week in support of this special mission offering. They were not just to take up a random love offering. That, that's been a Baptist thing for a long time. Somebody comes to your church and, and you know, a special speaker or somebody comes to give a special music and, oh, you, we're going to take up a love offering today, just a one-time thing to help them on their way and to thank them for coming. This was more than that. This was a very intentional, long-term reserve being built for a church that was going to go through a difficult period of time for quite a season. <clears throat> Paul was not sure when he was going to be able to come and direct the delivery of this gift. His schedule is very difficult as an apostle. So many times we see him making plans and having to change those plans as the Holy Spirit reveals new challenges. If he was going to come into Corinth, and if his time was very short, he didn't want to have to leave Corinth before the people of that city were able to gather their gift together. So he said, don't wait. Do it now. Week by week, as the Lord blesses you, give a portion of that to this special offering. So should we look at this as an instruction that our worshipful giving must be done weekly? Is this a command to be followed in Scripture? We should always be looking for that. We should be looking for instructions that God gives when He is in imperative mode. We should ask ourselves, am I doing the thing that the Scripture is telling me to do? Is, is my, my faith in Christ leading to an obedience to Him? Is that a fruit that's being born there? Uh, some give weekly, right, when we come to church. Some give once per paycheck. Maybe you're paid twice a, a month, and so you, you're in the habit of just writing a check every time you get paid. Others will give to the work of the Lord monthly. Uh, with the blessing of modern technology, some have set up an automatic withdrawal option. We can do that through our website. So that they give very consistently. There's an automatic withdrawal that goes to the church for the support of this mission and the missions that we endorse. That way you can avoid forgetting the checkbook. Some of you still have those things, right? I think the only thing we spend checks on is, is church giving. That's the one reason we still have that thing. But remember, this passage that we're studying this morning is, is not explicitly about the regular support that we offer our church. It is in reference to a special need that was met in a specific way. So I think we would be in error if we dogmatically thought to ourselves, I will be sinning against my God if not every week I'm giving what I can to the Lord's work. Um, this is not speaking about the regular weekly offering of worship. It's speaking about the special one. However, there are very practical benefits of being scheduled in our giving to God. 
being intentional guards against giving with a disengaged heart and mind. You know, sometimes if the, if the offering comes by and you haven't thought about it at all, you haven't looked at what the Lord has blessed you with, you haven't taken the time to reflect and thank the Lord for the blessing of your income. You haven't taken the time to thank the Lord that he has met all of your needs and that you have an abundance, you have extra that you can give to important work like church work. You haven't taken the time to think, wow, how, how can I sacrificially give to the Lord? Is this, is this an offering that is just a, such a small thing that I won't even notice that it's gone? Or is, am I truly giving to the Lord's work in such a way that this reflects the seriousness of my heart towards the gospel? If we budget and we plan how much we're giving to the Lord, it means that we have meditated upon our finances to some degree. We have to reflect on what God has blessed us with, and we have to do more than remember at the last minute to just throw in whatever loose bills might be floating around in our wallet or our purse. So that's one of the benefits of giving weekly is, is the intentionality of it. While a Christian is redeemed by the Lord, that does not mean that the tendency towards sin is necessarily removed from them, does it, church? I mean, we still struggle with selfishness. We still struggle with greed from time to time, even as Christians, believe it or not, right? So if you are intention, uh, intentional about the way that you give, if you are scheduled about it, then you're less likely to find yourself in a moment of selfishness just passing that thing by and not giving anything to the Lord's good work. Our default is often sin unless we are pursuing the Lord. And so it is good for us to be intentional about what we do in honor of God's work. It also, when we, when we think about things in a, in a designated way, in a, in, a, in a regular and consistent way, it makes us think about how grateful we should be that God supplies our own needs. And that beyond that, we have the resources to be generous to one another. So I especially mention this, if you give to the church through the electronic option that we have online, uh, I would encourage you to still be thinking about that gift, even though you're not actually taking anything out of your wallet and putting it in the offering when it comes by. Consider that transaction. Think about the fact that God has blessed you so that you can bless the, the brothers and sisters that you call your church family. God has blessed you so that you can, in some small way, contribute to what is going on throughout the world in very difficult areas, in areas where it is illegal to share a Bible with somebody else. You're giving to that kind of mission work. You're giving to mission work where, though we might not see explicit persecution, we're supporting missions that do see explicit persecution at times. So if you are electronically giving to the Lord, don't just check out during that portion of our worship service, but be worshipful about it. Be thankful for the mission efforts that are going on throughout the world and ask the Spirit to make you think about those things and to meditate upon them. It's a blessing to give, church. Do you believe that? Do you believe that it is a gift of God that He allows us to partake in what He is doing? Acts 20, verses 35 says, In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. So we, not, we ought not turn giving to the church into something that we do for ourselves. Think about this for a minute. Giving to God's work should not be something that we do to make ourselves feel better, to make ourselves feel validated or like, we don't have to worry about our status with God now because we gave to the Lord. That's actually a misunderstanding of the very reason we're saved in the first place. We're saved by the grace of God and not by any act of what we do, not by any um, abstention, abstention from sin. But if our heart loves our neighbor, then giving relief to our neighbor, giving financially to efforts to minister to and evangelize our neighbor, 
These should be things that eventually do, we do with a happy heart, not out of a begrudging obligation, but because this is the greatest investment in eternity that we can make while we're here on earth. One more reason to consider being regular and consistent in your giving. If your giving is worshipful, then shouldn't we pray about how much the Lord would have us contribute? Shouldn't that just be something that we, a decision we make on the cuff? It's hard to do that if we don't think about it until the offering is coming around and it's right upon us, right? Maybe that's why so many people sit in the back because they want that time to pray about their offering before it gets to them. I don't know, but we should be prayerful about these things. Uh, the best budget advice I can give to you is pray about these things and let the word of God contribute to your wisdom when it comes to ordering your finances and being responsible with them. So Paul tells these Corinthians, put something aside and store it up. And then Paul says specifically, each of you are to do this. So principle number two, giving to the Lord's work is a command to every believer. Every believer. This instruction is directed to the whole. It's not only instructed to those who are willing. It's not only instructed to those who are blessed with the spiritual gift of generosity or administration. Each believer no matter how God has crafted you, should be careful to give in a worshipful way to what the Lord is doing in his church. Now, this is worth bringing up. If, if you're not a believer, and I pray that every Sunday God is bringing people through those doors who do not yet have a faith in Christ. I pray that, but I pray that they don't stay that way, right? Our church is hoping that as the gospel is preached consistently in this pulpit, that people who come in perhaps thinking that they have a relationship with God, but not really knowing the Lord as their Lord and Savior, not really having given their life to Christ yet, those individuals might hear the Scripture, they might be convicted by the Holy Spirit, and that a transformation might occur even in our, in our service on a Sunday morning. So we pray that there will be non-believers here. We encourage you to invite your non-believing friends into this space on Sunday mornings so that they can come and watch the people of God be the people of God, and that they might see the contrast between those who have been radically changed by the Holy Spirit and those who have not. But if you're here on a Sunday morning and, and you're not a believer, the offering is it's really an act of worship for Christians. Don't feel obligated at all to give to the work of this church because this is what we give because of what Christ has done for us. We wouldn't give to the work of the Lord if it wasn't for the transformation he has brought about in us. We would just be selfish. We would use our money for what we wanted to use it for. We might give to nice causes, to, you know, to... Uh, animal relief or to the homeless sometimes, but it would be because we want to feel good about ourselves. It wouldn't be for the right reasons. It's when the Lord God reveals our own sin to us and helps us to be convicted to the heart and helps us to see that no efforts of our own will save us, that only the work of Jesus Christ can make us new and wash us clean. It is only then that we begin to give with the right motives and because we love our God and want to see him glorified. So each of you, meaning believers, is to take the, the offering that we give in worshipful ways to God seriously each Sunday. Giving any gift of money is not an act that brings merits to the believer. Uh, God can still use an offering given with the wrong intentions to help others, but will be of no spiritual benefit to the person who gives simply to try to get something back from God, hoping that God will somehow ignore that person's sins because of the, the bills that they put into the, the offering plate not on a basis of the, the way that they are washed by Christ, but on the basis of their own righteousness. That's the exact wrong way to approach the throne of heaven. We approach the throne of heaven absolutely destitute, with nothing to offer but our sin. 
And then God, in his grace, receives us to himself, not because we're better than our neighbor, but because Christ is better than us. Principle number three. Each of us is to give, and we're each to give to the Lord in proportion to how he has blessed us. Scripture says, put aside something uh, put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. Now, what this means is that our giving should be in accordance with, in proportion to, to some degree, the way that God has blessed us and has used um, the, the resources that are his to provide for our needs. Uh, this week, Bodie Bauckham spoke at the Shepherds Conference a couple of times, and it was, it was great to be able to hear him preach. In fact, his sermon, if you're going to listen to one sermon from the Shepherd's Conference, I would really encourage you to go and listen to his sermon on Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, about being unashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation. Incredibly, incredibly powerful message. But one, one of his sessions that he uh, shared with us was in regards to the critical race theory problem that's happening throughout our nation, particular in the Western world, and how it is poisoning the way that people think and is causing greater rifts of division between people of different ethnic backgrounds. And uh, one of the components of critical theory is the idea that what matters more than equality is equity. The idea that if we're going to really have equality, then everybody needs to have the same amount of stuff. That whatever you have needs to be equivalent to what I have. And that if, if there's any imbalance, and if you can measure that imbalance as being different between one ethnicity or another, or one gender or another, then that needs to be solved. And Vody spoke about that. I love the way he addressed it. He addressed it in part through the parable of the talents. And he, he made us think about this passage of Scripture that Jesus shares with us where he speaks about this rich, wealthy landowner who has servants. And three of his servants he calls to himself. He's about to go on a journey. He's about to leave his possessions behind and leave it in their care. And so to each of these three servants... He gives a portion of his wealth. He gives them a part of what is his. He doesn't give it to them to keep. He gives it to them to steward. And this is where Vody says the critical race theory crew would, would try to correct Christ. Because how does Christ give those talents to his servants? The first one, he says, I'm going to give you five talents. Take this talents, put it to good use, invest it well. When I return, we'll see what you have done with the amount that I have given to you. To the second servant, he gives only two talents. He doesn't give him the same five that he gave to the first. He gives him only two. And to the third servant, he gives just one talent. And if you're familiar with that parable, uh, when the landowner returns, this wealthy um, master returns, he brings a reckoning. He, he, he asks which each of these servants has done with what he has given to them. He doesn't go and say to the first one, after the first one says, well, look, I took your five talents and I turned it into ten. Okay? Second servant, I took your two talents and I turned it into four. And, and the last servant, oh, I only had one talent and I was afraid, so I buried it in the ground because I knew that you're a shrewd man and I didn't want to disappoint you. He doesn't go to the first guy and say, oh, good job, you've got ten talents now. Let's take those ten talents and let's redistribute it amongst the other guys because they only got a few talents. No, what that parable teaches us is that God doesn't give each of us exactly the same things, but he gives us the same charge, doesn't he? That is, be faithful with what the Lord has given to you. Be faithful 
to whatever God has put in your hands. The man who received little wasn't admonished because he only had little. He was admonished because he wasn't faithful to, the, to his master. And so no matter what you have, whether you have a very lot or whether you have a very little, there should be a desire in you to use what God has given to you wisely so that some of that might go to the work of the Lord. This is, this is part and parcel of our understanding of stewardship. The things that we own, we don't actually own. Everything in heaven and on earth belongs to who? Belongs to the Lord God. So if you've got a great, wonderful house, you're blessed. It's not actually your house. That's the Lord's house because you've been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ if you're a believer. That house has been given to you as a stewardship and God is going to let you use it for a time. Are you going to use that house for the glory of the Lord? If you have been given a job where you have a constant inflow of money, more than you actually need to survive, do you think God gave that to you because you're his favorite? Or do you think God gave that to you because he is giving you a resource and he's counting on you to go out and to do something well with that resource, to be good stewards of what he has blessed you with through the help and the power and the leading of the Holy Spirit? This is the idea of stewardship that really should change the way that we think about our wealth. It's not this reservoir that we have been given. It is not a, a favor that we have earned from God. Everything that is ours is actually His. And so our, it should not be in our hands in a tight, tight fist. It should be held with open fingers, ready for the Lord to take out of it and to put into somebody else's hands if they need it, ready to be used for a blessing, ready at any given time to meet a need that arises among your brothers and sisters or even among a complete stranger who needs to see the grace of Jesus Christ. Consider the example of the widow's offering recorded in Matthew 12. And by this, this example, I want to I show you this morning that this phrase, as he may prosper, does not only take your financial blessings into account. As he may prosper means more than in, a, in a proportion to what money you've been given by God. Look at this example from this widow. It's Matthew chapter 12, verses 41. And it says, and he sat down opposite the treasury, this is Jesus, and he watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which together make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and he said to them, truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put everything she has had into that offering. She has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Now, if you think about this idea of proportional giving, was this widow, who's set up as an example for the apostles, was she giving in accordance to her prosperity? At first glance, you might say, well, no. She was giving all that she had, even though it was next to nothing. That was sacrificial giving. But the heart of the woman's gift illustrates to us that her gift was indeed proportional to her giving because she considered herself an extremely blessed woman to know the Lord, to have His love, to be able to love Him back. God had granted her a repentant heart, a faith in Yahweh, and a peace and a confidence that's worth more than rubies and fine gold. She was rich with the blessings of God's grace, and indeed, she was no less rich after she put all her earthly possessions into that offering because she had far more than what she needed. God was her supply. 
And so when we think about proportional giving, we're not just thinking about money here. We're thinking about the way that God has made you his and has provided for your every need. The Macedonians that I mentioned just briefly earlier as are an example of sacrificial giving to us. In 2 Corinthians 8, uh, that next letter to the Corinthians that uh, is recorded in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul wrote, wrote to these same Corinthians. He said, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. And so the scripture records for us this example of the Macedonians who didn't have a lot of money. They weren't like Corinth. We've talked about how Corinth was this bustling, uh, uh, bustling metropolitan center of commerce where there's so much money flowing through the empire in Corinth. It was a trade center. There was lots of stuff produced in Corinth. And a lot of the people there were very wealthy. They had plenty. Macedonia, not exactly the same story. And yet those churches also, many of them dominated by Gentile believers, begged for the opportunity to give much of what little they had been given in support of their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. They didn't want to miss out on blessing those brothers and sisters simply because they were not a wealthy city. They still cared. They still wanted to give and they gave sacrificially. So this needs to inform our idea of what it means to give in proportion to what God has blessed us with. We are rich people, church. We are rich with grace. We are blessed with God's mercy and grace. The fact that he has been willing to shed his priceless blood at the cross makes us a new creation in Christ. And so there should not be this locked up idea in a Christian that they have so very little, that there's very nothing that they have to offer the church of God. God has made you new. Offer yourself. Give of your time. Give of your knowledge. Share your love with somebody who doesn't yet love the Lord. Be a resource to the kingdom of God. Having laid out some principles to guide their giving, Paul offers some practical instruction about the logistics of that offering in verses 3 and 4. He says, And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go to you, they will accompany me. So our fourth and final principle today that we can glean from this text is that we are to handle the, the offering of God with care. We are to be careful with what God gives to us. This is an offering that will no doubt ease the burden of the saints, but it is first and foremost an offering to God. This is God's resources given back to Him. Therefore, it should be guarded and handled by faithful men so that there's very little chance that it'll be stolen or used in inappropriate ways. When we take up the offering here at First Family Church every week, it's brought to Paul's office where it is kept in a strong safe. It is counted after service by two men, no less than two. Typically a combination of elders and deacons do that work. It is recorded faithfully, and that record is sent to Bill Farrar electronically so that he can keep tabs on it. It is then secured in the safe until an elder can deliver it to the bank during the weekdays. Records are kept of where that money is spent and how it impacts the budget of your church. That way our spending can be tracked and we can be more strategic year by year in what we ask for certain budget line items. 
We want to also be faithful in the way that we care for God's resources at our church, just as they made provisions for faithful men to deliver this offering to Jerusalem when the time came. Now, if they are affirming their own messengers by letter, why does Paul even need to be involved? There's multiple reasons. One is that uh, many messengers supplies an accountability to the process. It's not just a small group. It is many people being involved. And since there is a spiritual motivation to the gift, remember, this is, this is hopefully going to bolster and strengthen not only the needs of the saints in Jerusalem, but also their unity with the Gentile believers. It might be very beneficial to have an apostle to the Gentiles, Paul, to be there with the, the giving of that gift to communicate the heart of the believers who gave to that mission. If it seems advisable that I would go, are the words of Paul. So Paul is leaving the door open for his further involvement in the endeavor. Now, local ministry is foundational. It can't be relegated to the back burner. But broader-scale mission work must be important to us as well. Part of what has historically, it has historically meant to be Baptist as a church is a healthy respect for the autonomy and the independence of the local congregation. Because we are Baptists, we believe that God raises up faithful elders to be shepherds of his flock, sub-shepherds under the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. And so we give respect to those who run their congregations, and we expect those men to have accountability over what they do. Baptist churches in general, and Southern Baptist churches in particular, recognize that in calling elders to ministry, the Holy Spirit's equipping them and directing them in such a way that God will use them to address the needs of their specific and particular people. And so there, there's, there's no top-heavy organization that is above us as a church. We don't have uh, some panel of bishops somewhere who don't know you but are making great decisions about what this church does or how you use your budget. We are autonomous and, and locally led. It is not only impractical but also dangerous to put the important decision-making process of how a church will function as light and salt to the world around it in its particular community, to put that in the hands of somebody who's far away from that community, who doesn't know the people that they are trying to reach there, who doesn't know the history of that church and the needs of the people who are being raised up and edified in that place. But also equally important to our Baptist identity is the strong compulsion to fulfill the great commission of our Savior Jesus Christ, a commission that acknowledges that the life transformation that comes when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and the urgency to take that message far beyond the walls of our church should be fundamental to all that we do. So no local church can afford to operate as though they are totally an independent entity. To do so would be to turn our back on the greater identity of, that we have in Christ and the universal church. In the same way that a local church is akin to a body with all of its interdependent parts and systems, so too does each congregation fit into the larger whole of the universal church. And to some significant degree, the local church is only as healthy as the greater church that is an extension of. So we will continue to support. We will continue to pray. We will continue to send. And we will continue to rejoice in the good fruit that God's work is bearing, not only here in us, but in the people that we support financially.